the joy that we each experience and appreciate on a morning such as this one is truly a grand and wonderful thing. Do all in the name of the Lord. We just sang that together as we hymned with our voices the sentiment of that song and what a powerful theme it is. It is our goal under the banner of Colossians 3.17 to do exactly that. Certainly it's good for us to be together on this Lord's Day morning that we might offer to God our worship. Surely as you come to this second Sunday with me in the month of April, we have already arrived at the fourth installment in our series of lessons on the fundamentals of the faith. So far among the lessons we've considered, there is a God. God exists. Jesus exists. And we learned in that lesson in February about the features and attributes of the existence of the Master and the fact of His coming. In March, we looked at the Bible, the basic character of the Word of God and how irreplaceable is that book. Today, one of the features we come to about that book is this, the plan of salvation. Now, as we develop that this morning over the next few moments, I trust that we'll be reminded of not only some of the basics of what the Word of God presents, but that we'll be reminded and renewed in our appreciation and our understanding of the criticalness of it. The plan of salvation, although those words may roll off our tongue, I trust that we'll never lose sight of how basic, how essential, and how profound in many ways that idea really is. On that slide, that introductory one before you, I merely invited you to notice that there are some elements in the faith which are more advanced. And Hebrews 6 verse 1, in fact, makes allusion to those things. But isn't it true there are some elements in the faith which are elementary or basic? And that's not to say they're in any way insultingly low-minded, but they're so fundamental to everything else being built upon them. Today, why don't we invest at least a few moments to think about the plan of salvation. As we do that, I've tried to motivate the lesson by beginning on this next slide. To talk about a plan of salvation, the plan of salvation, maybe at the very outset it would be well to think about the word salvation. What is it of which we speak? Salvation from what? Salvation connected to what? So on this slide, may I point out to you both Old and New Testament a truth that we will understand. The concept is so basic in as much as we see it connected to the word deliverance. I say it that way for this reason. There are many verses in the Old Testament, especially in which the word salvation appears, but the idea behind what's being described is deliverance. Now, sometimes it's salvation from an enemy, and so when the word was used, certainly a discussion was involving being delivered from the oppressing of that enemy. That was true in a whole host of passages. I've invited your thought to some of these. Exodus 15:2, When Miriam and the other ladies sang as a result of God's delivering the children of Israel by way of the Red Sea from the pursuing Egyptians, You'll notice the word was used in the sense we've been delivered from them. But not only is that one to be noted. Psalm 98, 2 may be one of the most well-known ones in which praise to God was exhibited for the salvation that He brings. And it's clear from the context it was deliverance. 
maybe all of that begins to embed in our thinking. If we're going to discuss salvation, we're being delivered from something. We are being removed from the terrible statement connected with whatever it is that is oppressing us. This concept of salvation is developed somewhat more thoroughly in the middle section of the slide because you and I realize we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The primary enemy that you and I face today and the one over which all eternity is hanging for you and me is none other than our chief arch enemy, Satan himself. Oh, how productive the devil often is in bringing about behaviors and conduct and are encouraging by way of temptation our participation in certain things. Jesus said the devil's a liar from the beginning. I hope we'll never think that he's telling us the truth. I hope we never allow for a moment him to deceive us into thinking what he actually says is right. Because his goal, his aim, his motivation by way of deception, and isn't he the great deceiver, Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10? Maybe in that connection I've asked you to note this. Anytime, anybody, anywhere transgresses God's law, that person has committed sin. Now that's a very broad statement, isn't it? Sometimes it can be by virtue of thought. You and I can sin by thinking things we should not think. Aren't we told that in particular in texts such as Proverbs chapter 24? The thought of foolishness is sin, Proverbs 24, 9. We can sin as we speak what we ought not speak. By, by the way, we can sin when we fail to speak what we should speak. All of that would lead us to say that men are going to give account in the judgment for every idle word that they say, Matthew 12, verses 36 and 7. Surely in light of this, we now come to actions we can involve ourselves in actions which are not pleasing to God. That too, of course, is sin. One of the things then to note easily is that God doesn't make anybody sin. James 1.13 says, By way of rather strong statement, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The movement through those verses never changes. It is when you and I are excited in our lust, and we allow that lust to lead us then to do what we ought not do, or to fail to do what we ought to do, we then become guilty of sin and transgressing the law of God. In that state, consider where we've come. We have fallen from the high perch of loyalty and faithfulness to God to a point where we have again become abominable in our actions to Him. The wages of sin is death. That statement of Romans 6.23 reminds us then that sin's consequences... Its inevitable fruit will be death. We're separated from God, and if that isn't remedied, all for eternity, that state will never be changed. We'll be separated from Him. This is a rather amazing thing. It's a shocking thing 
I hope the hair on the back of our neck is standing up about now. Then to think that if this separation from God is not remedied in this life, it becomes permanent and fatal at the time of our death, or at the time of the Lord's second coming. The powerful consideration connected to that leads us then to plea for the following. Is there any way out of this? Because isn't it true that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you and me alike? Not a one of us can claim, I've never sinned. Not a one of us can claim, I am above it. Not a one of us is able to say, through the thoroughness of my life, I shall never deviate from God's plan. Now the fact is, the predestinationalists have asserted that somehow God made it within us, we can't help it. That's a lie. Every one of us can help it, but we choose to do it. We have the decision right there, life or death, it's your choice, and we choose death. Every one of us have done it. Every one of us have been in that position. We choose the way of death. And once we're in it, then what? According to these verses, sin's wages are death. Separation from God, Isaiah 59.1. No wonder our question should be like so many then. Is there a plan of salvation? Is there any way to be delivered from this sentence? Is there any way to be removed from the penalty that goes with it? As you close that slide with me, aren't you amazed that there are several ways in which the idea is portrayed for us? In Luke 15, verses 3 and following, Jesus Himself told the parable, it precedes the lost boy, but there's a lost coin and a lost sheep. And do you remember the celebration that went with the appreciation of finding the sheep that was lost? Notice Jesus said it was lost. The sheep was not in the safe confines of the fold where the other 99 were. Not only that, there was that coin that again was lost. But oh, what celebration took place when the coin was found. Maybe you and I can begin to appreciate, oh, how wonderful it is that God says there is a way out of this mess. There is a plan of salvation. I hope that we'll never lose sight of the enjoyment and the profound blessing that goes with the existence of the plan of salvation. As you and I close that slide then, why don't we then develop from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that passage reminds us then that the elements connected to the matter of salvation will involve two things. Grace on the one hand and faith on the other. Both are essential. Both are necessary. Both are required. Nobody can be saved without both of them. If you like to think of it as an equation, it might look like this. Grace plus faith equals salvation. Just like one plus one is two, you take out either of the matters on the left and you don't get two on the right. Take out either grace or faith, you will not get salvation. What then did the inspired writer mean by this? And how might we appreciate its application to us? First of all, let's develop some thoughts that I've asked you to note on this slide. First of all, the plan of salvation is not some fly-by-night scheme. It's not a plan B, if you please. 
It was in the mind of the great God of heaven, apparently, for all the ceaseless stretches of past eternity. That's why He sent the Savior. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, the deliverance therein spoken of was before the world ever began. In the mind of God, there was a plan. And the enactedness connected to that plan and the features that go with it are a part of what the wonderful God of heaven had in store. That thought, that idea behind that plan, perhaps leads me to invite you to consider this. The Old Testament promised it. By that I mean, although the fullness of its reality had not yet come into being, God so wondrously spoke of it and the kind of reality would be when it was to come. For that reason, look at verses like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. I hope as you and I think about this, if I may paraphrase some of what's contained in those verses, description is made about not only Old Testament worthies, but even angels. And the text says, they desire to look into what you and I now enjoy. Have you ever thought about it like this? As great a man as Noah was, there was no plan of salvation in his day. As great a man as Moses was, he never heard of a plan of salvation. As great a man as David and Solomon otherwise may have been, no thought of a plan of salvation. And yet, in our Sunday school classes, our youngsters are taught about it today. You and I are privileged to appreciate and understand it, and of course comply with it you see what those Old Testament worthies could only dream about, what they could only hope for, you and I now have in reality. The plan of salvation is real at this point. Aren't you thankful? By the fact you and I live on this side of the cross, we are in a position to appreciate the direct occurrence of this wonderful plan and that you and I, of course, can comply with it. And so it is on that slide. God made provisions for it, as I mentioned a moment ago, from ages long past. Consider with me Genesis 3.15. This is in many ways one of the first paramount passages in all the Word of God connected to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now you and I well know that the events that took place in Genesis chapter 3 occurred approximately 4,000 years before Jesus was born. Approximately four millennia before the Christ child would enter this earth, enter this world, and the events connected to His life would take place. And yet God there said, Adam and Eve, you know, had just committed transgression. They had violated the law of God. And God had already addressed the serpent. He had addressed both Adam and Eve, in at least one directed way to that point. But in this passage, he directly makes a statement to the devil. I'll put enmity between thy seed and her seed. Enmity? There will be an element of animosity or enemy character between the seed of the woman and the ongoing activities of the devil. You devil, your seed will bruise his heel but he will bruise your head. Now that he refers to the seed of the woman. And as he would bruise the head of the serpent, 
God was already painting a dramatic picture that there will come a time when victory will be appreciated and known and the overwhelming deliverance from the devil will be a reality. Men won't have to suffer beneath the club of the devil anymore. A plan of salvation will be in place. You may notice then next on that slide, promises to Abraham and to David along the line connected to the plan of salvation were highlighted, sometimes hinted. Surely, as you give thought to all of them, some of those promises lead us to note this. Heaven has done its part in making real the plan of salvation. Nobody, anywhere, can claim that God has somehow failed to put into place an acceptably powerful plan of salvation. The God of heaven has done His part. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, May we now make this observation. You recall earlier I pointed out that grace plus faith will equal salvation. It is in that deliverance. Can God's grace fail? There are many be quick to say, well, of course not. Isn't God Almighty? Sure He is. Isn't God such that His greatness is profound? Absolutely. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 19, 26, No thought could be withholding from thee. But in that connection in light, there are other verses like Hebrews 12, 15 that talk about the failure of God's grace. And other verses such as Galatians 2, 21 that talk about God's grace being frustrated. And verses such as Jude verse 4 that talk about again God's grace failing to bring about that which God had in mind. Question, how can this be? How can God's grace fail? I believe by now you've probably thought of the answer. You know what, it's, you know what it is. Salvation is by grace through faith. God has offered His grace. He didn't say man will have to accept it. He didn't say that man will be forced to appreciate and obey it. We all know that God has allowed the human family its own choice and decision. We each are allowed to do this. God has offered it, but I do not have to take it. And I can go to hell if I want to, and so can you. We're beginning to see where this plan of salvation is going to enter. God has stipulated terms, you see, that will go with this salvation. He won't just save anybody despite whether they want it or not. There are terms connected to that salvation, and anybody that will comply with them will be the blessed beneficiaries of what the rewards are for those terms. But if a person chooses not to comply with them, chooses, you see, to not obey them, then, of course, they will not be the recipients of those terms of deliverance. You'll notice at the top of that slide that it brings us to Titus 2, verse 11. Now, frankly, we'll note verse number 12 as we give attention to verse 11, but it begins by saying, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. All men. The terms of this salvation are accessible to everybody. Not just white people, not just black people, not just Asian Americans, not just those of sufficient wealth or status in society. Every single person serves beneath the consideration of what that plan of salvation will have to offer. 
Didn't Jesus say it like this in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Everybody. Asians, Australians, Americans, North American people, you name it. Nobody's exempted. That plan of salvation embodied in the words of that gospel are such that Jesus specifically with a nail-pierced hand pointed to a world lost in sin and told those apostles, you go and preach to all of them. And through the banner of time, you and I, of course, today, with excitement, strive to send forth a message like that to those who also are so sorely in need of it. You may appreciate then on that slide, Paul went on to say this, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Note up front, God's grace teaches. God's grace is an instructor. It teaches. Paul, what does it teach? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's grace teaches that there are certain behaviors that are unacceptable. Certain things that are not pleasing to God and must not be done. Notice three adverbs were used. That again, teaching us that denying ungodliness, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Therefore, we choose, we strive, we exert effort to bring about our conduct in such a way that it is described favorably in the light of the Word of God. You and I realize well that with these ideas about God's grace can fail. You and I have already learned then what you and I can do to make it fail for us. I just don't do what He says. God wants me to be saved. He wants you to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, He would have all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9 says He doesn't want anybody to be lost. But the fact is, what God wants and what I want might be two different things. I might love the devil more than I love him. And I might love activities connected to things God finds displeasing more than I love serving him. And God will allow you and me to make those choices. He will allow us to live in those ways. But if I live that way, I have frustrated the grace of God because that's not what He wants. That's not why the Lord went to the cross. Jesus died that nobody would have to go to hell. That nobody would have to live separate and apart from association favorably in fellowship with God. And yet, you and I can choose to do it. You'll notice then about the middle of that slide that you and I are given these terms. Here's a plan of salvation, the Lord said. Here's what's required for you to be delivered from sin, from the clutches of the devil, from that sentence connected to ruin and doom. Here's what you have to do. Here's what's involved. First, we might begin by observing blood has to be involved. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 So blood has to be involved. There can be no remission of sin, period, without blood. Now you and I recall the Old Testament, of course, had much blood involved, but it was the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of animals and otherwise. 
And the Hebrew writer point blank says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Never. Not one sin did that ever eliminate or remit. Fact is, the kinds of blood are pretty limited. There's either human or animal. That's it. And if the blood of bulls and goats, if animal blood can't take away sin, there's but one kind left. Can I shed my own blood for my own sin? Could I shed my blood for your sin? There's a problem. God required a blemishly sacrifice. God required sacrifices that were ideal. I'm a sinner. We learned that earlier. I can't shed my blood for my sins nor yours. My blood's not pure. It can't cleanse sin. Neither can yours. Are we hopeless? Praise be unto God. The answer is no. The Son of God went to an old cross in A.D. 30, the spring of that year. And as He did so, His blood was perfect. He had never committed a single sin. Not one. He'd never thought anything impure. He'd never said anything inappropriate. He'd never acted in a way that was displeasing to His heavenly Father. His blood was pure. And so He could go to a cross and shed blood that could be applied to others so that their sins could be forgiven. And that's, of course, what happened. In verses such as these, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Oh, how we should hear it. God made Christ to be sin for Randy. So He took my sins. He paid the price for them and for yours too. The goal of which I could then be made righteous in Him. You see, it's not by myself I could ever be righteous. That is apparently not something I have enough interest to do. Like I said earlier, it's not that He makes me sin. I choose to do it. But yet, Christ went to the cross to shed His blood so that I could apply that blood to me, and in so doing, He could wash my sins away. There is a plan. By now we know surely that plan involves the application of Christ's blood. How does it happen? What's involved in it? It's a beautiful thing. By now, aren't we thankful that there is a plan of salvation? We'd be hopeless without it. As you close that slide with me, you'll notice that it involves these things. Simply as the Master Himself and others in the New Testament by His Word have set before us. This plan, you have to hear about it. One has to hear the characteristic involved in this matter of salvation. Do you recall in Acts 2.37, on that day of Pentecost, those group, that group that had assembled and gathered there, it says, when they heard this... They heard the proclamation of the wonders of the masters of Jesus. And when they heard it, it says their heart was pricked. Some of them, their conscience began to bother them. Some of them began to, you see, appreciate that we put to death the Son of God. We're guilty. But you'll notice they heard something 
And oh, today we have to hear something. The plan of salvation is not going to come in a dream. It's not going to come as we walk in the woods on some still day. We have to hear the message in which that matter is contained. You might recall an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 riding in a chariot. He heard something. Oh, how we should be thankful we can hear the message of truth. But you see, hearing it alone is not enough to deliver us from sin. We have to believe it. We have to be convicted of the reality of that which it describes. And in particular, Jesus would say in John 8, 24, "...except ye believe I am He, the Messiah, the One who can save you." If you don't believe that, you'll die in your sins. We have to not only hear, but believe the fullness and truth of that which it describes. That, of course, requires that our lesson of last month, we have to recognize the inspired nature of the Bible. But you see, belief alone won't save you. Belief is not enough to save. It's not enough to deliver. Do you recall in James 2.19... The devil believes. I would suspect that the devil, more firmly than any human on earth, believes Jesus. He knows who he is, and he appreciates the power of him, but we know the devil won't be saved despite the fact he believes. Belief alone is not enough. What's next? You might recall a number of passages, and we could in fact list a few of them, but let's begin with this one. Jesus would say in Luke 13, In verses 3 and 5, quoted twice in that passage, Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. There is a reality of perishing. Doom, you see, awaits any that would not repent. It may well be that Paul highlighted that even more strongly in the words of Acts 17.30. He said, The times of this ignorance, God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. May I ask who's exempt? Nobody. Everybody, everywhere, to be right before God will have to repent. And we understand why it is placed in that way. You surely wouldn't repent of something if you don't have any belief in it. But if you believe you're a sinner, and you believe the Lord died for you, then you will be motivated to turn aside from that life of sin to leave that behind, to make the necessary changes, perhaps in action, in word, or or in thought. And thus, that's what repentance is. A change of mind that results in a change of behavior. But may we pause long enough to say, repentance alone won't save either. In other words, there's no passage in the New Testament that connects repentance alone with the deliverance of which we've spoken. And so we look further. Confession, as you'll notice on that slide, is worthy of our consideration. You may recall that Jesus had said that anybody that won't confess Him before men, Jesus said, I'll deny you before the Father. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Do we not read about that good confession that Timothy had made in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12? Do we not recall in the words of Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, "...with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." He didn't say confession was the same as salvation. He said it's a part of what leads to it. 
might we notice thus, we still haven't found where the blood of Christ is applied. The blood isn't applied in belief. The blood isn't applied in repentance. The blood isn't applied in confession. We must look further. You'll notice on that slide then that we come to observe this one. As we go back to the words of Peter, as well as the other apostles speaking on the day of Pentecost, remember, after the group had cried, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do for what? For supper? So that we can attend the next ball game? Absolutely not. What shall we do to have the deliverance of which you've spoken? This salvation you've mentioned to us. Here's what Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. And that pair of prepositional phrases is critical. For the remission of sin. We've already learned sin's the problem. Blood's required for the removal of that sin, and suddenly we've now found where it is it takes place. Repent and be baptized. Peter and the others made note of baptism. And surely you and I too would emphasize the placement of it. Because what does the New Testament say about the lovely, the profound act of baptism? I've asked you to notice on that slide that you and I might recall the famous words of Paul in connection to this in Acts twenty-two sixteen. Would you picture this with me? Paul, again, was a, a very dramatic and, and powerful person. You might recall that for three days after the events of Acts chapter 9 had begun, Paul didn't eat. His conscience was bothering him. He had spoken to Jesus on the road to Damascus, but he still didn't know what to do. How do I apply to my life what you have hinted at? Remember, Jesus said, go into the city and it'll be told you what you have to do. Acts 9 verses 6 and following. He was waiting, waiting. Finally, Ananias came. Here's what he said. Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul, it's time you do something. This state of repentance, this state of uncertainty in mind's not enough. Sins aren't taken away that way. Praying is not enough. You need to be baptized. The plan of salvation still requires exactly the same. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Sins are washed away when we contact the blood of Christ in baptism. Paul would say in Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's where newness of life comes. Once we're baptized, once we have ascended that beautiful pinnacle of the plan of salvation, we have heard, we have believed, we have repented, and we've made confession. We now joyously submit ourselves to being baptized for the remission of our sins. Once we do that, What's left is to live faithfully until death. Revelation 2.10 will say, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. One by one, as you and I have thought about the plan, 
and given some appreciation to it, it then has brought us to a point of conclusion. It might be that someone in this assembly today has perhaps become aware of the plan, the wonderful plan of salvation, and it is a unique plan. There is no alternate or substitute. If you have never rendered obedience to it, what a joyous day of celebration. What a monumental day for all eternity it will be for you. Your sins washed away as you comply with that plan. You're made a member of the church by the power of Christ Himself, Acts 2.47. Your name is entered into the book of life as described in Revelation 20. Today, though, it could be that having done that, you have failed to live up to the matchless privilege that was brought to you. You have begun to live in the squalor of sin, in the mire spoken of in 2 Peter 2.22. Just like that dog that turned again to its vomit, that hog that was washed to, again, back to, the, to, back to the mud hole. If you've begun to live that way, you don't have to stay there. You see, the Lord invites, He pleads, He beckons, He wishes so much for you again to know your former status. It requires that you make repentance of those sins, that you make confession of them, And we'd be delighted to pray unto God, making acknowledgement of those things. And He's assured us, just as He does you, that He will reinstate you to a position of faith and fidelity. And you can again know the blessings that go with that fellowship with God. Today, may we appreciate the plan of salvation is, as the name suggests, that plan to deliver us from the clutches of the devil to deliver us into the marvelous realms of heavenly eternity. Today, if we could be of help and assistance to anybody here, we would love to do that. In fact, with great excitement to do that, while together we stand and while we sing.